The reading this morning comes from Hebrews chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purifications for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. You may be seated. What a, a great start to the morning so far, huh? I love the... The Missio kids, you know you have a lot of kids when like, it takes like five minutes to file them in and then five minutes to file them out. Uh, and and they, sing, they sing songs like I do. You just kind of mumble through the words until you get to the chorus. You're like, there's my jam. I know that spot. I'm going to sing that part louder. Uh, and then we had, we had the, uh, the love candle got blown out also, but Kristen came and fixed that. So it's been an exciting morning so far. All of Advent is going well. Uh, this is one of my favorite times of year, though, uh, not just because of like, all the Christmas uh, festivities and everything, but for, as a church for us to be able to gather uh, for the, the four weeks leading up till Christmas and talk through the significance of, of the event, the, of the significance of the Christmas birth of Jesus. And so gathering here and, and studying God's word is a really helpful way to frame our minds and shape our thinking as we uh, approach the birth of Jesus and celebrate the coming of Jesus as our Savior. And we mentioned this last few weeks, but the reason that we, we're taking the time to do this every year is because uh, during the Christmas season, Jesus is everywhere and nowhere all at the same time. He, he is uh, in manger scenes all over the place. He's in Christmas songs all over the place. Uh, but the, the true identity of Jesus as the Lord and Savior of the universe, that uh, concept is something that we don't like to talk about, and it, it's hard in culture to, to see the distinction between baby Jesus that's uh, innocent, that can be kind of just tucked in the corner in the manger, and then the King of Kings and the, the Lord of all creation uh, being worshipped for who he is. So when we take an Advent season like this to, to focus on those things, the goal is that it reorients our ideas and our thinking and our sight so that we see Jesus in all of his glory uh, this Christmas. And so what we've been doing the last three weeks is going over three different offices of Jesus, Jesus in his role as prophet, priest, and king. This is a quote we have started with every week. It's from John Calvin. He says that among heretics and false Christians, Christ is found in name only, but by those who are truly and effectually called of God, he is acknowledged as a prophet, king, and priest. And the reason I keep using this quote every time is because this idea of Christ being acknowledged in name only is the perfect synopsis of our culture right now. Okay, like at the Christmas season, everyone wants to acknowledge Jesus. We tip our hat to him. We understand that Christmas has the word Christ in it. But if we're really going to submit our lives to him, if we're really going to follow Jesus, not just as the baby who was born, but as the man who grew to, to obey in our place and die in our place for our sins, we have to see him as prophet, priest, and king, not just an innocent baby in a manger. So, so two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus as our prophet. And so a prophet, someone who brings the word of God to us. And we see that at Christmas, we see Jesus uh, bringing the, God, the word of God to us by becoming the word of God with us. He takes on flesh and he embodies and he lives out the word of God for us. Last week, we talked about Jesus as our priest. And so a priest is someone who makes sacrifices for sins to atone for the sin of the people, to bring the people and God back together. And we see that Jesus took on flesh so that he could take on our sin. And so it, it's him living in our place and dying in our place is why he can be our priest that brings us back to God. Uh, and this morning we're going to talk to you about Jesus being our king. So the theme of this morning is Jesus is king. And I, I really wish I had a Kanye West joke to put out right here, but I can't think of any. And if, if you don't know who Kanye is, you wouldn't have gotten the joke anyway. But he just released an album called Jesus is King. Um, but uh, the, the, last week we said that Jesus as priest, if you don't understand the concept of Jesus being your priest, then you're not really a Christian. 
It's impossible to be a follower of Christ and not understand that he is the one who atoned for your sin by dying in your place for your sins. This morning we're talking about Jesus as king, and Jesus as king shapes the way we do everything else in life. Like, you can't be a Christian without understanding him as your priest. You can't live for Jesus without understanding him as your king. And so I, I don't want to oversell this, but this is a, a very important topic for us to be diving into this morning. So before we do that, let's pray, and then we'll open the Bible together. Heavenly Father, I thank you for each person here and for the way that you have brought us to this place this morning to hear from you. And I pray that it is your Holy Spirit that would speak this morning, that as we study these different passages of Scripture, that we would see the glory of your Son and that we would all leave here more in love with him than when we came. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, as Americans, whenever we talk about Jesus as king, we always have this tricky relationship with the word king because, you know, you know our history, we're, we're willing to fight the British in two different wars in order to make sure we don't have a king. We have this American frontiersman idea of like, no one's going to tell me what to do. I don't have a king. I would never submit to a king. That's kind of our cultural ethos. Uh, but it's interesting that every year uh, or every four years when we go to election season, which, you know, election season's coming up based off of the, the tension that's rising in society, right? But every time we go to an election, it's it seems almost as if people want to find a king. Okay, people want to have someone to give their allegiance to and to make them king. And the problem is we just disagree about who the king should be. Uh, it's also weird when we talk about kings that we have this obsession with athletes uh, and, and we treat them like kings sometimes as well. I mean, like LeBron James, his nickname is King James. And that's a little bit ironic, right, with our American aversion to kingship. Uh, and then if you think about just celebrities in general, if you, if you think back 200 years ago, how people would treat monarchs, a lot of those same uh, ideas and affections that used to be directed at monarchs or kings and queens is now directed at our celebrities, okay? So, like, so if someone has enough followers on Instagram, we treat them like they are a, a, a monarch, like they are a king because of the influence they have over society. Uh, and it, even if none of those things connect with you with the idea of a king, uh, we all have something that we look to as the highest authority. And, and whatever it is that I go to for the highest authority, in some sense, that is the king of my life. That is the Lord or the ruler of my life. And so, so if you look to the, the scientific method and the sci scientific uh, scientism or that worldview, that becomes your king. If you have a political ideology, that can easily become your king. Uh, or even if you just have a generic deity, you know, this, this idea of a higher power, that kind of the Alcoholics Anonymous type of, of a deity, someone upstairs that's, that's somehow connected to the universe. That, that concept uh, loosely connects to what it means to be a king. And so there's all these different types of monarchs that are competing for authority in our lives. And we have to go back and say, well, the buck has to stop somewhere. Okay, so, so what does it mean to actually have a king? What does the Bible mean by that? And I think the interesting thing is that when the Bible gives the answer to why Jesus is king, the most consistent answer that it gives is Jesus is king because he's the creator. Okay, because Jesus created the universe, he is the king and Lord over the universe. And so if, if he has the power to create, he has the authority to rule, is, is what the scripture says. So we see that in John chapter 1. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with him, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And so the, author, uh, the Apostle John is really channeling Genesis 1-1 there, where it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And he's, he's identifying Jesus as the Word made flesh, as the God of the universe who created the universe. The same God who was in the beginning creating the heavens and the earth is the Word made flesh in John chapter 1. And so what, what John is saying, what the author of Genesis is saying, is that if God created space and time, he has the authority to rule over space and time. 
Okay, if God is the creator, if he has the uh, power to create, he has the authority to rule. And, and when we went through the book of Hebrews a few years ago, we, we used this illustration, but I think it's time to bring it back out. The reason we all know this is true is because I have this picture of this guy behind me because of that guy right there. Remember him, Bob Ross? And so when you're, when you're doing your painting, you can put happy little trees anywhere you want. And do you know why you can put happy little trees anywhere you want? Because it's your own little world. This is what he would always say. It's your own little world. You can do whatever you want. Okay, so, so even Bob Ross understands this concept that if you have the power to create something, you have the authority to rule over that. And so Jesus, as the creator, is also the king. That's what all of this is pointing to. And so the application for us as individuals is if you think about it, there can only be one monarch. There, there can only be one king. And so if Jesus is the creator, I cannot be the king. If Jesus is the creator, I cannot be the king. And here's another TV show to give some, some evidence to this. Um, Kelly and I really enjoy uh, The Office, and God has used the TV show The Office to speak to our souls in so many different ways. But there's this one season where the, the, man, the, the office has two managers. They're co-managers. And, and one of the employees is sarcastically saying, come on, two, two leaders never works. I mean, right, like what, what nation, uh, what, have you ever heard of a nation that doesn't have two presidents? Or, or what ship sets sail without two captains? And, and where would the Catholic Church be without the popes? And that's his, his little joke there. And that's about as funny as it's going to get this morning. So if you didn't like that quote, you're not going to like the rest of this either. Uh, but what, what Oscar is trying to say in that is that if there's a king, there can only be one king. Okay? There, there really can only be one leader of this. And so the tension for us as humans is we want to be king. But we have to keep coming back to this principle that says, if Jesus is the creator, I cannot be the king. Okay, the humility that flows from saying God is God and I am not. And if God is God and I am not, if Jesus is the creator, I cannot be the king. And because of that, I have to, to give God his rightful due. I have to worship him as not only the creator of the universe, but also as the king of the universe and the king of my life as well. But the interesting thing is that, that that's the principle of scripture. Jesus as creator is why he is also king. But then there's this strange turn of events where God himself invites humanity into this role of ruling the world. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 1. It's the, obviously, it's the first page in your Bible. We're going to read a few verses, and it'll be on the screen behind me as well. But this is the, the count of creation, and it says, then, verse 26, Then God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and fill the earth, and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And so when, so when God creates man in his image, he gives him this assignment of having dominion over all the earth. So dominion is, is a ruling term. A, a king has dominion over an area. But the reason that Adam and Eve, created in God's image, have this dominion over the earth is because of the image that they were created in, because of who they were created to reflect. And so in the ancient world, when a king would rule over a territory, he would set up images of himself, little statues of himself in all of the city squares to remind the people who their ruler was. And so that same expression, image and likeness, is used for those statues, and it's used here to describe humanity. It's saying that God made us in his image and likeness, and because we are uh, representatives of God and all of his authority, that is why we have dominion to rule over the earth, to steward the earth, to care for the earth. And so, so when we talk about our role with authority, it's not that we are kings. Like, a better word to describe our role with authority is viceroys. Okay, so a viceroy, the definition of that is an official who runs a state 
in the name of and as the representative of the monarch of that territory. Okay, a viceroy is someone who runs a state in the name of and under the authority of the representative of the monarch of that territory. And so what that is, is a viceroy is not the king of the area, but he, he or she is someone who has authority delegated to him or her. Okay, because of the authority of God as creator and king, out of his, his desire to invite us into his work, he has delegated authority to us on the earth to have dominion. And so that's, that's a really surprising concept. Like it's super surprising to think that God would give us this role. And so if God gives us authority in the earth under his authority, then that means that we can't be passive in our existence as humans. Okay? God has given us a role, and we need to step into that role to steward the authority well that God has delegated to us. That's a, that's, if you think about the power of God and the, the majesty of God, it's a really surprising concept that he would invite us into that. Okay, but what happens next, though, if that's surprising, what happens next is just downright tragic. If you look over at Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, this is, Genesis 3 is the description of when sin entered the world, the fall of, of mankind. And, and the part we're going to read here in verse 5 is uh, the serpent comes to Eve and he's tempting her, saying, you shouldn't believe what God says. And, and notice the temptation that he uses with Eve in verse 5. It says, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And so the, the temptation that Satan uses against Eve is this desire to be like God. But the tragedy of that is, is that Eve already was like God. She was already made in the image of God. Her and Adam had already been delegated that authority from God. And by not trusting God, they, they turned this uh, good creation into a rebellious existence. They were, they were saying in their hearts, God may have been the creator, but I want to be the king. And, and that is the tension of every sin that you and I struggle with, is this tension of saying, God may have been the creator, but I want to be the king in my life. And so if you look at any of the idols that we struggle with in our hearts or any of the sins that we constantly go back to, what it really is is it's a power struggle. Us going after God saying, you may have been the creator, but I want to be the king. And when we try to take authority that only God has, when we try to live as if we're kings, there's always this power struggle, which, which is ironic, right? And one of the character traits of God is he is omnipotent. He has all power, but we want to get into a power struggle with the God who created the universe. And so I think one of the ways to, to fight that tension, to fight that battle, is to remind ourselves who is God and who are we in comparison. I mean, if, if Jesus is the creator, I can't be the king. And so if you look at some of the struggles we have, like I, I have this desire to be so competent that I don't need anything from anyone else. I want to have all the answers myself. I want to know everything. I want to be able to do everything exactly right. Okay, but what that really is, that's a desire to be self-sufficient. And only God is self-sufficient. Only God has no needs. The rest of us as humans, I mean, we need air, we need food, we need water, we need relationships. We need all these things. God, as a self-sufficient being, has no needs. He is completely different than I am in that context. I also have this desire to be all things to all people. I want, I want, no matter when you ask for help, I want to be able to go there and be the one to be your savior, to be your rescuer, to provide help for you. But the problem is I am limited by space. I can only be one place at one time. But in contrast, God is omnipresent. He is everywhere. He can be the savior for everyone because he's not bound by space like you and I are. Okay, another desire I have is I want to be accomplished and productive. I want to think that if I just work really hard at doing things, I'm going to get all the assignments done that I want to get done in a day or a week or a year or my lifetime. But the truth is I am bound by time. Okay, I have a limited number of days, but in contrast, God is eternal. He has no limit. He will accomplish everything that he wants to, which gets to the last attribute. Uh, I have this desire to be in control. I want things to go the way I want them to go, and I want them to be done the way I want them done. 
Okay, but I am limited in power and influence. But God, in his majesty, is omnipotent. He has all power. He has all influence. He gets what he wants every single time. That's why he is God. And so this, this is uh, fleshed out by, in a quote by Jen Wilkin, who's a, a fantastic author. She says it this way. Our, our whole lives as Christ followers are to be given over to the identification and celebration of the limits God has ordained for us. He lovingly teaches them to us through his word, through trials, through discipline. He humbles us through these means to remind us that we are not him, nor is anyone or anything else we know. Okay? Or another way you can say that is, Jesus is the creator, so I cannot be the king. Okay, celebrating your limits, uh, recognizing the way that you have uh, uh, been bound by space and time and limited power and all those things should stir in us an affection for Jesus and say, if Jesus created all of this universe, then he has to be king. There's no way I can rule as well as Jesus can. I mean, like, like we live, I, I mention this all the time, but we're so blessed to live in this city where every morning you get to wake up and see Pikes Peak as, a, as this beacon of God's glory screaming out to us how great and magnificent Jesus is. Okay, when you see that peak with a fresh coat of snow and the sunrise is bouncing off of it, turning it orange and purple, your heart can't help but be stirred and say, there must surely be someone out there greater than I am to make something as majestic as that. Okay, and what we're doing in that moment, when you feel that internal desire, that, that warmth in you, the desires to be so close to the mountain, that's God's love in you saying, he's the creator, so you don't have to be the king. You can back off. You don't have to be the one trying to rule the universe because he is in control. And so the problem, though, is we have this internal tension, right, where we say, like, God has created us in his image to have dominion. We, we are made to be viceroys who rule under his authority. We have that, that desire, but we also have this desire to usurp God's role, to be king, to rule over him, and to rule over other people. And so how do we manage that tension between the God-given authority and the desire to take authority that doesn't belong to us? And we, and we see that played out in some of the limits and the constraints that God puts on his leaders in the Old Testament. So so next place we're going to turn is Deuteronomy 17, which again will be on the pages of the screen behind me, but it's good to have there, turn there in your Bible if you are able. Uh, so what this is in Deuteronomy is, is this is before Israel has gone into the promised land, and what God's doing is, is he is uh, giving some provisions for what the king is able to do. He's saying that you're going to get a king at some point. This is the kind of character and person that the king should be. So Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14. It says, when you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. So there's a lot of things going on here. One is, is God says that having a king is an okay thing. It's not a bad thing to have someone who is delegated as a viceroy to rule over the people of God. But the, the qualifications are is that the king that's going to rule over Israel must be the one that is chosen by God. God is the one who has the authority to anoint this leader over the nation of Israel. And the reason it has to be chosen from among your brothers, is that expression, has to be an, a, a Jewish person, not a foreign person ruling over them. It's because the whole purpose of the nation of Israel was to be a beacon of God's glory to the nations. Okay, God chose Abraham and his descendants to be his special people so that all the rest of the world would see the glory of God emanating from the people of Israel. And so it has to be an Israelite ruling over them so that they are correctly re reflecting the glory not to the king himself, but reflecting that glory onto God as the creator because God as the creator is also the king. And, that's, and so because of that, um, this is like a great rubric for any human leader that we have. 
Okay, like you are a good human leader or a bad human leader based off of whether or not you are a conduit for God's glory to him or whether you are just a, a wasteland that tries to absorb all the glory for yourself. Okay, godly leaders are conduits of glory to God as the creator and as the king. And so, so if there's this tension because of the fall, God puts these boundaries on the human king and these limits on the human king. He goes on from there in verse 16. It says, only he, the king, must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest he turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a book, a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read it all the days of his life." that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. And so, so once these constraints are in place, this is the, the limits that God puts on the king. And he says that there, there's three things that the king must not do and one thing that he has to do. The three things he can't do is he can't acquire for himself many horses, many wives, or much gold. And so there, there's, there's reasons for each of those. He can't have many horses because a horse in this time of, of history was the most powerful weapon of war. And so he's saying he doesn't want the king to acquire lots of horses in this massive army because then the king, instead of trusting in God to protect him, will trust in the strength of his army. In the same way, he says, don't acquire many wives. And the reason it's important for a king to understand, well, it's important for all of us to understand that one, right? But the reason it's important for a king to understand that is because in the ancient world, a king would make treaties with other nations. And the sign of a treaty would be that they would give a daughter of one king as a wife to the other king. And so he's saying, don't have many wives. He's saying, don't make for yourself many alliances and treaties with other nations. Because if you have these treaties with all these other nations around you, you're going to trust your alliances to keep your nation safe instead of trusting Jesus or God to be the one to keep you safe. And the last one is, is obvious. Don't acquire for yourself much gold because the more wealth you get, the more you set yourself above other people and you trust the strength of your wealth instead of trusting God to be the one to keep you safe. And so, so all of these things, and then, okay, those are the three constraints. The thing that you're supposed to do, though, and this is fascinating, the king had to take the, the law, the first five books of the Bible, and he had to write a handwritten copy of the law himself that's approved by the priest and then study that law every single day so he doesn't set himself above his brothers. Okay, what, it, what it is is he, by copying the law, he's being reminded that God is the creator and so he can't really be the king. He's just a viceroy under that. And so all of these limits on the king is a, is a hugely um, a abnormal thing in the ancient world. Because all the kings of the ancient world, they set themselves up as gods. They said, you will worship me as a god. Because I'm your king, I am also your god. But God is telling the leaders of Israel, I am God and I'm the creator. And because of that, you can have an earthly king, but he is only ruling under delegated authority from what I have given him. And so I think if we, we pause here, these three constraints and this one encouragement are hugely impactful for us today in the 21st century too. Okay, they just look a little different. So I'm, I'm not sure if any of you have, have many horses, but I, I doubt we're trusting in our horses to keep us safe. Okay, if, you have, if you're looking for power instead, if you, if you say that I have influence over other people, that's the same kind of thing where you're trusting in your own power instead of trusting in God to be the one to keep you safe. 
Okay, or if you have, uh, again, the whole, we don't want to have many wives for ourselves. But we also, a lot of times, we accumulate relationships, and we treat relationships like alliances or treaties. And we say, if I have enough people around me who like me, then I will be okay. And we look to our relationships instead of looking to God to be the one to care for us. And then, again, the wealth one is obvious. If we acquire a lot of, uh, in our savings account, a, a huge salary, good insurance policies, all of those things, we're tempted to trust the financial means that we have to provide for us instead of trusting God as the creator and king of the universe to be the one to provide for us. But then, then the admonition for the king of Israel is the same for us. The way we are constantly reminded that Jesus is the creator and therefore I can't be king is by studying his word. That's why it's so important that we spend time in the Bible every day because my heart constantly longs to set up myself as the king of the universe. And it's only when I go to God's word that I see I am someone completely different than God. God is God and I am not, and I dare not try to usurp his authority from that. So that's, that's how the, the nation of Israel came about with this king. But then what we see, that, that's the hope of a king, I should say. The hope of the king was that he would be someone who would do these things. But the heartache or the reality of what happened is that Israel really quickly went off the edge of there and did not live by that ideal that God set before them. So there's kind of five stages of the heartache of how the kings failed Israel. The first stage we see is in Judges, where, where after Israel took possession of the land, they didn't have a king. They didn't have someone to be the conduit of God's glory. And so we read this at the very last book of the book of Judges. It says, In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Okay, so because the nation didn't have a king pointing them to God as king, all these, every, every person in Israel ruled as their own king. They, they saw themselves as little mini fiefdoms, mini monarchs that could make their own decisions. And instead of conducting the glory to God, they all deserved it or tried to get it for themselves. And they didn't have a king ruling Israel. And so then after that, after Judges comes, comes 1 Samuel. And 1 Samuel, we see the first monarch, the first king of a united Israel. And that's this person, Saul. And right from the start with Saul, we see that the, the king that Israel has chosen is not the type of king that God would have chosen for his people. So, so we, we see that uh, Israel chose Saul. Okay, when, when back in Deuteronomy 17, God is the one who said he would choose the king of Israel. Okay, the second thing we see about Saul is that he was chosen because of his good looks and his height. Okay, that's, 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 uh, that's like looking at an actor and telling, them telling you who to vote for in the election kind of thing. It was just the appearance of this guy. And so another interesting thing about them sing singling out Saul's height is the only time height is mentioned in the Old Testament is when it's describing the enemies of Israel. Okay, so the Israelites were afraid to go into the promised land because it says the people there are giants. And so they're afraid of these people because of their physical prowess. So Israel chooses a king for themselves based off of how tall and strong the guy is, not based off of the character that he has. And we, and we see that right off the bat, Saul is hiding among the luggage when he is anointed king. He's, he's afraid to assume the role of the leader of Israel. So that, that's, that's three strikes right there against Saul. And what ends up happening with Saul is he ignores the word of God, he disobeys God, and so God takes the kingship from him. That's the second stage of this heartbreak. But the, the third stage is actually a kind of a little bright spot in Israel's history. God himself chooses David not because of his appearance, because he's, he's a poor, weak shepherd boy at the time, but God chooses David, he anoints him king, and says that David is going to be the one who's going to be the conduit of God's glory to the nations. And so God makes this covenant with David and says, through the offspring of David, the, the real Messiah, the real king of the universe will come. That seems like a, like a good spot, right? But it's, it's David's son right after him that, again, things fall off the, the edge again. So David's son Solomon is the third king of this united kingdom of Israel, and, and he starts off well. He has this wisdom from God. God blesses him with all these things. But towards the end of his life, the writer of 1 Kings points out that Solomon does three things. He accumulates for himself many horses, he accumulates many wives, and he accumulates much gold. 
Okay, and because he does those three things, because he ignores the warnings that God put in the book of Deuteronomy, the, the, the kingdom ends up being divided into two kingdoms, uh, the, the northern kingdom and the kingdom of Judah. And, and within a few hundred years, both of those kingdoms are led into exile. They're, they're taken captive. They're, they're enslaved to other nations because every single ruler that they had in the northern kingdom and most of the rulers of the southern kingdom were all trying to take God's authority. Instead of viewing themselves as viceroys living under the delegated authority of God, they said, God may have been the creator, but I want to be the king. I want to be the one to rule. And so that this, this trajectory of Israel is, is really quick downward spiral because the hope of a human monarch is crushed under the weight of human sin. Okay, every, every king that assumes the throne is such a sinner, they cannot lead the nation of Israel where God desires them to be led. So, so after all this, after the, the failed monarchy of Israel, we're left seeing uh, that we're, really, we're longing for a king, but what we really need is a savior. We need, we need not just a human king to lead us, we need, a, we need God himself to be the one to save us from our sins. And so we see that through the, the, uh, the prophecies in, Israel, in the nation of Israel. So Isaiah 9, 6 is one of those famous prophecies that the prophet Isaiah gave the people of Israel. And it's, it's, it's read a lot of times here at Christmas. But we're going to look at this through the lens of God as king. Not just God as our king, but God as our savior king. It says, For to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder. And so, so a, a, a monarchy flows through the lineage of the king. So a child being born is a sign of a new king is coming. It says the government or the, the rule or reign of this king is going to be on his shoulder. He's going to be able to carry the nation of Israel to the place that God wants them to go. And it says, And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so each of those four names of this coming king, this king who would be born, are a different part of why God is, or Jesus is such a magnificent king. He's a wonderful counselor. Okay, a counselor is someone who makes plans. And he's, Jesus is a wonderful counselor because all of his plans always succeed. He always does the right thing. He chooses the right thing. He is the mighty God. So he, he reflects the character of God. He, he embodies the character of God in the flesh. He is the everlasting father. Okay, so a good father is someone who cares for the needs of his children. A good king is someone who cares for the needs of his people. And they're saying that God himself, when, he, this, when this Messiah comes, is going to rule as an everlasting father. He's going to care for the people under his reign. And lastly, he is the prince of peace. Okay, and, and peace in Hebrew doesn't just mean the absence of conflict. It means the presence of thriving. Okay, it's everyone in the nation uh, thriving the way that God created them. All the relationships and the economy, everything about existence is done well there. When we see from this verse and what we see from the failure of Israel's kings before that is I don't just need a creator king. I also need a savior king. I don't need someone just to rule over me as the creator. I need someone to come and stand by me as my savior, to be the savior king for me. And so, so that's what Jesus is. That's that no, big uh, uh, punchline here. You didn't see this twist coming, right? Jesus is the savior king. But we see that laid out in Philippians chapter 2. This is uh, um, another passage we want to turn to that'll be on the screen behind me. So, so when God prophesied through Isaiah that the Messiah would come, he would be all these things, the people of Israel waited for hundreds of years to see that happen. And then again, we celebrate at Christmas every year the birth of Jesus, not just because it's a sweet little manger scene, but because of what Jesus, what is significant about Jesus coming in the flesh. Philippians 2, beginning in verse 5. It says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. And being found in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. 
Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So this is a picture of Jesus as the, the Savior King. He's not only the Creator King, He's the Savior King. And He left heaven. He left all the glory and majesty that was due Him as ruling and reigning from His throne in heaven. He takes on human flesh. He's born in a weak, frail existence as a human. But then He grows and obeys God all the days of His life. He never does anything that He shouldn't have done. He always stays true to the Word of God that was commanded to Him. And then because of that, He is perfectly positioned to be the one to die for our sins, to take our sin upon Himself. That was last Last week, Jesus as priest. But what I love about this passage, it says because of those things, because he submitted to the point of death, even death on a cross, God has highly exalted him and given him a name that is above every name, that every knee should bow and tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. That's saying that because of the death of Jesus, his death has brought him now a more full and a more grand and a more wonderful glory than God would have had if he had not come to earth and suffered in our place. This is the amazing thing about Jesus as the creator king is he was willing to live as the savior king and suffer for us so that we could go and be uh, united with him in heaven to have this pres- the presence of God living with inside of us. And so if you think about it this way, the Old Testament failure of the kings, okay, their sin brought suffering on the people of Israel. Because the kings led the nation astray, the people of Israel suffered. And so if God is going to redeem the people and bring them out of that suffering, the only path back is going through suffering. Jesus has to suffer as the king in order to bring us back on that same road that we all chose to travel down because of our rebellion and our sin. And here's the amazing thing about Jesus living as our savior and suffering for us. If Jesus is the king, kings don't, um, how do kings respond to rebellions? Okay, kings squash rebellions. They do not put up with rebellions. But Jesus is a king unlike any other king in the history of the world because he's willing to suffer on behalf of the rebels. Instead of squashing the rebellion, he suffers in the rebels' place so that he could crush our rebellion by identifying with us as sinners. This is what Hebrews 2 tells us. It says, Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. So this is the humiliation of Jesus, leaving the throne of heaven and taking on flesh on the earth. But because of this, he is crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. Okay, Jesus, as the, the crucified king, deserves more glory than if he had not been crucified because so that the, by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, because, because he's the creator king, all things exist by him, in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Okay, Jesus is a more perfect king because he suffered in our place for our sins. Okay, he, he, he took our flesh, he took our, not only our flesh on himself, but our sin upon himself so that he could rule not only just as our creator, but also rule as our savior. So where we want to, want to land this this morning then is, is go back to the beginning. How did God create us? God created us to be viceroys who rule under the authority of him, uh, proclaiming the glory of him as the creator. We're to image and reflect the glory of God. But because of our rebellion and our sin, we're, we're drawing glory to ourselves instead of conducting it to God as we deserve. But because Jesus died in our place, because he takes our sin, we're now free to be back to how God created us to be. We're free to reign alongside of him and reflect the glory of God. And this is like an astounding concept. Look at 2 Timothy 2. It says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. 
So Jesus as the, the creator of the universe, we are going to reign with him as well. Or, or Ephesians 2, 6 says that Jesus has raised us up with him and has seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Okay, so, so a king is the only one who's allowed to sit down in the throne room because it's sitting down is a sign of his authority. But, but this should sound almost blasphemous to us. If you, if you really understand how great and glorious Jesus is and his right to rule the universe, then this says that God has given us a seat next to him. He is sharing his authority, his rule, and his reign with us because we are the redeemed children of God. And the reason that we are able to do that, the key reason, is because we have submitted to him in faith. And submitting to him in faith is a form of suffering where we follow Jesus in the suffering that he gave. This is the last passage I want to read, Romans 8, 16, 8, 16 and 17. It says, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We're able to rule with him, but this is the condition. Provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. And the way that we suffer to, with him is what Paul talks about is by dying to ourself, crucifying our own lives and saying that I'm no longer going to live as if I can be the king. I'm going to submit myself to the authority of Jesus and say, if Jesus is my savior, he must also be my king. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you that we can uh, come to this and see all these different passages that point to a different aspect of what it means for you to be our king. And Lord, as your people this morning, we confess uh, you are the creator, uh, and therefore we cannot be the king. I pray that we would have the, the humility to not only say those words, but to mean them in our hearts. And I pray that that, that that humility in our hearts would just overflow with worship and praise for you and just celebration of the fact that, that you left the throne of heaven to come to earth to embody flesh so that you could live in our place and die in our place. And I pray that our discussion time now would be for your glory, that we would encourage one another well, we would love each other well and point each other to the glory of your son. That's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, well, uh, this is your first time here. We're so glad you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, the reason we sit around tables is so that after we study a passage or several passages like this morning, we can turn inward and we can process these ideas together and we can share how God is, is, is working in our hearts and, and mutually edify each other. So we have three questions to guide our discussion. Uh, and these are just guides. Uh, you're free to say anything you're comfortable with or to remain silent if you would rather not join the discussion. Uh, but the first question is, how are you being intentional about focusing on Jesus this Advent season? This is the third week in a row we've used this question. I, I want us all to encourage each other and say, this is how we are growing in our faith this Christmas, and we can all glean from each other and take ideas of how we can pursue Jesus more in Advent. The second question is, when do you feel your desire to be king? When do you most notice in your heart that you want to be the ruler of the universe? And when you act on those desires, what are the consequences for those around you? Okay, so sin always hurts the people around us. When I want to be king, I inevitably hurt people around me. What, how does that look in your life when you struggle with that? Then lastly, what about these verses discussed today help you remember that only Jesus is king? Which part stands out to you the most? What is the Holy Spirit stirring in you the most? Uh, and how does that change your relationship with others? So when I want to be king, I end up hurting the people around me. When I put Jesus as king, what are the effects of that for people around me instead? So we'll do that for 10 minutes, and then we'll end with a time of worship. Okay, guys, we're going to transition into a, a time of communion, and communion for us is an opportunity to respond to everything that God has done for us, everything that God is, and we will talk about some of his attributes today, um, everything that he's revealed to us about himself through his word, through prayer, um, and so communion is a way for us to remember and to respond to that. Um, here at Missio Dei Falcon, we practice communion 
by uh, coming to one of these stations here. There's four around the room, and you come up um, sometime during the next three songs here and uh, take the bread or cracker, I guess, as it is, and uh, juice, and take that back to your table, take it off to the side, whatever kind of, whenever and however it feels best to you. We also practice what was for, called um, open communion. So if you are a believer in Christ, but you're not a regular attender or a member of this church, you are more than welcome to come to the table. Um, if you're not yet a believer in Christ, uh, we just encourage you to, to stay where you are, to pray, um, and um, maybe this would be the day, actually, that God gives you the faith um, to believe. So um, that's what we're going to do. We're actually going to launch into this with a responsive reading in a minute. Um, we'll have three songs during which you can come up and take communion. Jill and I will be over here somewhere on the side, I guess, by the blue mats, uh, during the three songs, if you'd like anybody to pray with you, we'd be more than happy to do that. Um, yeah, so if you would, please stand with me, and we'll do this responsive reading. Uh, the all parts are all of us, and the leader parts are me. So we'll start with uh, the all part here. All right. Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Accept our praises, Heavenly Father, through your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who in the same night that he was betrayed, took bread and gave you thanks. He broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. To you be glory and praise forever. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and gave you thanks and gave it to them, saying, Drink this, all of you. This is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. To you be glory and praise forever. Therefore, Heavenly Father, we remember his offering of himself made once for all upon the cross. We proclaim his mighty resurrection and glorious ascension. We look for the coming of your kingdom, and with this bread and this cup, we make the memorial of Christ, your Son, our Lord. When we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim your death, Lord Jesus, until you come in glory. Accept through him, our great high priest, this our sacrifice of thanks and praise. And as we eat and drink these holy gifts in the presence of your divine majesty, renew us by your spirit, inspire us by your love, unite us in the body of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. To you be glory and praise forever. Through him and with him and in him, in the unity of the Holy Spirit, with all who stand before you in earth and heaven, we worship you, Father Almighty, in songs of everlasting praise. Blessing and honor and glory and power be yours forever and ever. Amen. <laughs> 